Uh, I think that is fair yeah, to say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis on this very, very hot day is... Fellow reporter, Joe Manis. And our very special guest today. David Barklage, um, consultant. And yes. also a the the best hairstyle in Missouri politics, <laughs> the the frosted tip. Well, he has a great tie on. It's a really nice gray pinstripe shoot and a terrific paisley. He tie. he looks fabulous, I've, and we're no there's no sarcasm. I'm there. starting no. to feel like a steer being uh, prepared for the county fair. I'm going to get an award, and then I'm going to be cut up into steaks. <laughs> we're 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 friendly folk here on the politically speaking podcast. Yes, although I will tell my husband about that tie. I'm a big tie person. So thank you for coming. By the way. Um, we're kind of continuing our, I guess, our second year of our summer consultant series yes. on the Politically Speaking <laughs> podcast. And yes. we're going to see if uh, Mr. Barclay here can one-up Jeff Rowe, Jane Duker, Jack Cardetti in terms of, of, of star power. That's I think tough he has competition. A, it's very James tough. Harris. I, 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 James Harris as well. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> but for, for people that, that haven't followed you and don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into politics and kind of what you do now. And where you came from and, of course, where you went to school. You mean like from birth? <laughs> a little bit. No, uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri is where I grew up with. Uh, from. I grew up in a church, Rush Limbaugh, David Limbaugh, the Limbaugh clan went, Peter Kinder, um, Jason Crow. so uh, a lot of politically active people grew up in our congregation. Uh, I uh, was student body president of high school and college and got mad at the city council when I was in college and ran and got elected when I was 21, <laughs> Yeah. was managing a congressional campaign and then started helping others. And then I got out, got into business. And in 1994, when uh, Congress switched, uh, it inspired me to go to Mark Richardson, the father yeah. of now Speaker of the House, Todd yeah. Richardson, and ask him if he'd hire me to sort of help build a House committee. And I approached the Senate as well to build a Senate committee to take majorities. And um, they uh, hired me and I worked both committees helping build fundraise and we took the Senate and then got it up to 26 seats, uh, 26-8 from 14 to uh, to 20 out of a 34-member body. Now, the congressional race that you were working on back in the day, was mm -hmm. that Emerson's? Bill Emerson. Yeah, Bill's? He was my early mentor, and Peter Kinder was the campaign manager. And Peter's been yelling at me ever since. Yeah. Well, you are you are kind of uh, associated a lot with the lieutenant governor, Peter Kinder, for better or for worse. Um you know, what's what's been kind of your political and personal relationship over the years, and how has it evolved? When he needs someone to yell at without consequences, it's normally me. Um, no, Peter is, has, uh, uh, you know, he is so widely read. Um, I think where Peter and I complement each other very well is that he has such a strong skill set in terms of policy and how his depth and being read and, and his willingness to sort of stand up and hit issues. I think everybody knows that. Peter is is definitely an ideologically uh, and sort of policy-driven individual. Yes. Uh, and, you know, from a political standpoint, I think I give that compliment to him. So we've had a, a friendship for years and uh, um, a, a great friendship. He's been a very good friend, his family. Uh, we have so many mutual friends and grew up in the same town and everything else. So we're, we're very good friends and 
I give them whatever good advice I can. Now, I think what you're mainly associated with, besides uh, being the political virtuoso for Kinder, is the the state senate campaigns. I think back before campaign finance limits, there were committees, one Democratic committee and a Republican, which I think had different names, but it was like Majority Fund Inc. It was the Senate Majority Fund, but basically it was the Republican Fund that gave a lot of the money to the Republican candidates. And I think that what has been really striking over the last, I think, decade or so is you go from 2001, where I guess it was basically tied or the Republicans had a one-seat majority. Yeah, and and that's when Kinder actually became head of the Senate. And now you're at a point where it's at 25, I think. You have Republicans representing areas that I'm sure Republicans never expected to represent, like Jefferson County, some places in mid-Missouri. Northeast Missouri is not even contested anymore. I mean, beyond just your own political consultant voodoo stuff, what do you think has changed to where it went from maybe the precipice of the majority look, to now? Look, I, I'm no more than a conductor uh, and understand that the majorities that happened in the House and Senate were team efforts from a lot of the people you've had on here, and I'm just one of one of those many. So uh, the real uh, you know focus is Missouri is a border state, and we have seen – uh, a transition in 1994, you saw the Deep South go Republican heavily. Yeah. Um, people don't realize that that shift in Congress, that 51, 52 seats, that 51 of the 52 were Republican-leaning seats that had just been held by Democrats a long time, but they were voting presidential Republican. Uh, the more subtle shift has since then has been in West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, where you've seen the border states along the Mason-Dixon line uh, you know, Civil War politics impacts uh, these states, you know, tremendously. Well, those Civil War uh, Democrats in these states, um, there were more union in there than in the Deep South, things like that. But they have now slowly come over um, to the Republican Party. You're seeing Missouri become a sea of red and, and out state almost everywhere, Little Dixie uh, through central Missouri, the Boot Hill, things like that. And that really transition has opened up the opportunity and the problem the Democrat Party base and what they face is they are an urban party. Um, their concentration is St. Louis, Kansas City. So how does St. Louis and Kansas City-based party go out in rural Missouri and actively recruit uh, conservative Democrats to be part of their coalition? It's a very tough thing. So a lot of that's just demographics. Now, this kind of then leads into something that uh, Mike Parson, who's state senator from outstate Missouri, lives in Boulevard, mm-hmm. and he's running for for governor in 2016, he talked to me a few, few weeks ago, the day that he announced, and he was talking about how he believes uh, strategically that he doesn't need, not that he's not going to make a pitch for urban or suburban votes, uh-huh. but he thinks that he can win without him because uh-huh. of the such a large Republican majorities in rural Missouri, and he points to what happened with Right to Farm. I'm interested in your take on whether or not we're going to see increasingly candidates who are even more um, looking for polarized uh, voting blocks. I mean, the, you, the you, trend's you, actually opposite. Um, there have been more Republican governors from St. Louis than from anywhere, actually, over history. But the real changes are something that aren't necessarily related to politics. Mike, uh, let me say first, Mike Parson is a prince of a guy, very good guy, like him, worked with him. Um, but I, I think that it is uh, what we've seen since the early 90s, uh, and you remember this, Carnahan on transportation. There was a yes. huge urban-rural divide, and it was about right. fair share and everything else. Well, 
with transportation really doing funding by congressional districts with the end of patronage jobs, uh, who controls as governor or where they're from isn't as important. Back in the day, if you wanted a bridge, you wanted a road, a highway, you wanted a job, you wanted the governor from your area. And that's changed. And we've seen the fair share argument in the mid-90s, and we polled this probably eight or 900 polls, has gone from very high in determining people to very low. So I don't think anybody can artificially make an argument. I don't think Mike is. I, I think that uh, you can win a gubernatorial election without uh, being from the urban or winning the urban areas. But with that being said, I don't think there's a natural inclination of people to vote against St. Louis, vote against Kansas City, just because the person's there. I think the fact that you have a St. Louis politician running statewide, the problem then is, is that they probably made a lot of votes that isn't in touch with rural conservatives. But in case we just have a resident, I think it's a lot different, like a Bruner or some of the others. Well, in fact, I'm glad you brought up Bruner, because you have been doing some assistance for mm -hmm. Bruner. Hey, you've done some work for Bruner. I know he's still considering whether or not he's going to run for governor in 2016. He, for our listeners, John Bruner is a St. Louis area businessman. He did run for the U.S. Senate in 2012, lost in the primary. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's because the outstate people prefer, generally prefer Todd Aiken, although he's from the St. Louis area, but that's a whole nother show. But my, my question, though, is, so as you're advising Bruner, or anybody from St. Louis as they're looking at running for governor, particularly on the Republican side, and Hannaway is from St. Louis area too. How, do, do you advise them to play that down and to play up uh, since the base is mainly out state? You can't get away with that. I mean, you, we've seen where people will awkwardly run a commercial in St. Louis and then something entirely different in rural Missouri. Your opponents are going to take you on on that. So I don't think that works. Um, I think Brenner, it's going to be the core of issues. And I, I don't think it's a question whether he's running. I think it's when he announces. Okay. I, think, I think he's he's very uh, solid and committed to moving forward. But in terms of an announcement and when and how he does that is, I think, really what is uh, he's looking at. Um, no, I don't think it's even an issue. I think when you talk about transportation, if you want good transportation in St. Louis, you have to give good roads leading to St. Louis. When you talk about health care, it's not just a St. Louis issue. So I don't really see an issue in the campaign that is really going to break upon uh, partisan lines. In a Republican primary, it's about geographic sum, but it's going to be a lot about sort of philosophy and ideas. Well, that was going to be my next question, kind of going into the, the Bruner thing a little I bit I knew more. you were waiting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was ready, ready to pounce, because I got an email announcing an exploratory committee from mm -hmm. your company. And my first question was, you know, Peter Kinder's out there saying, I'm thinking of running for governor, too. And my natural question is, is the, you know, decades-long Barklage-Kinder relationship, political relationship, finished if both of them end up running for governor? Well, talk about awkward. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Peter is going to make uh, whatever decision that he makes, and, and I'm supportive of his career as, you know, as to my role. Um, my role is being defined. Who do I think is most likely to be Chris Coster, who uh, I actually, you know, recruited to run for the Senate and, and elected him when he was a 100% pro-life Republican. I'm sure uh, you regret that <laughs> no, every day. <laughs> no, Chris is a very good guy personally. We still have a friendship. Uh, he just made a poor decision, but, uh, you know, we can't blame our friends for that. Understood. Uh, you know, I think it's a question that you have to ask each, and I've actually uh, had an opportunity to hear most of the candidates and and talked to most of the candidates. Uh, and. Uh, had offers from several candidates. My view is who is the strongest candidate against Chris Coster and who will be a very good leader in terms of once they get elected. And I, I think that 
John Bruner is the strongest candidate for many reasons. Mm-hmm. I think he has the best contrast, things like that. Well, yeah, that was going to be my question. Yeah, like we had him more, on the, more detail. We, we had him on our show, and he talked a lot about bringing the Republican Party together because mm-hmm. it was kind of after the, the Schweik suicide. But I didn't really get a sense of a lot of policy or ideas from him, probably because he's still deciding whether he wants to run. Why do you think he would be better than Mike Parson, Peter Kinder, Eric Greitens, Catherine Hannaway, yeah. any of the other people? Um, well, all of them, uh, you know, are absolutely uh, excellent leaders and have uh, great traits. It's really more about electability. But I think, uh, Bruno, there's three major traits is that, one, um, I'm concerned with the culture of corruption, and that can be a whole other show. But i got to tell you, when we brought in the legislature, uh, the lobbyists weren't taking any Republicans out to dinner. They were huddled in their offices. Most of them didn't know them. They could get stuff done. They worked with each other in caucus. Uh, and as the majority has matured, I think that we have seen uh, a similar situation we saw with uh, the uh, the Democrat majorities before. But with that being said, I think, John, he can't be bought. Uh, he can't be owned. He's independently wealthy. Um, we need a new approach. It just seems that politicians are making many too many decisions on polling. I'm all about using polling in campaigns, but at some point you have to discard and do the right thing when you get elected. And I think Bruner, uh, as being a non-career politician, important. And last is, I think he's an incredible manager. If you sit down and talk to him, you find out that, I mean, he managed. He took a small company that was struggling, or at least that was uh, not uh, incredibly strong, and built it into a powerhouse. This guy can actually manage government. And I'm tired of Republicans talking about only cutting and instead of actually trying to manage things to make things better. Yeah, we, I have a clip of Bruner right now talking about kind of another impetus for him getting in, which I alluded to earlier, which was the fact that he thought before Schweik's death that the discourse in the Republican Party was kind of out of control and how he feels he thinks that he can change that tone. Unlike the ad that was run against uh, Tom Schweik, that disparage his stature, his character, squash him like a bug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These personal attacks are totally uncalled for because, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when you move off of the issues and go into the personal attacks, you've lost the values and the principles that why you got into the race to begin with. So I think that the predicate of that question was, you know, he had run negative ads in his U.S. Senate race, yes. which was not surprising. I mean, it was a competitive primary. They but, all did. But along with Mike Parson, they're both kind of coming in with let's all get along, let's not be as negative sort of mentality. And the question that I have for you and for anybody else is, do you really think that's going to last given the fact that there's going to be a competitive race and often competitive races get testy and personal? I do. I do. Look, uh, I I helped recruit or recruited Tom to run for auditor, ran his first campaign. Uh, His wife, Kathy, is one of the dearest people I know. I think sometimes it takes a tragedy like that to actually put a pause on things. And I've been as tough as anybody. I mean, I I don't uh, shy away from that. But the fact is, is at some point you realize that uh, there is that line and that we all need to try harder to avoid that line. And so from that standpoint, I'm, I'm absolutely committed to trying to run it as positively and about issues and focus away from those kind of personal issues. And I think a lot of the others, I think Mike Parsons is absolutely, you know, there. I think that some of the other candidates are going to look at that. I I just not sure that that really long term does a lot of good for the party or for the state to get into those kind of politics. But at the same time, you look at Schweik's kickoff. And first, I want to say I respected uh, the auditor a lot. I was sorry 
what happened. But at his kickoff, his kickoff, he was extremely <laughs> negative. I yes. even asked him about it afterwards. He specifically referred to Coster as corrupt. He used that word. He contended that Hannaway, a fellow Republican, he said she was in the pocket of Rex Singfeld, and he, you know, actually uh, was contending that if she wins, Singfeld's going to control the state. I mean, he was ex- more specific, more attack dog in his uh, kickoff than usually candidates are. So my point being that um, I'm not justifying the ads that were run against him, but my point was he was dishing it out too. And and some would say, some uh, analysts say, well, a certain amount of negativity works. That's why they continue to do it. it negative so works, you, but it's, it's where you draw you, the line one and two. I think so where you, do you draw the line? So can you? So you're saying it's okay to call somebody corrupt? No, I think uh, no, I, 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 I think it is part of what happens in politics every day. It doesn't make it right. right. Okay, so I think preferably if we could all talk fairly about issues and talk about vision, uh, I think the more positively you can reinforce. I mean, Todd Aiken won a primary without ever doing a yep. check it. Now, correct. There were other forces out there beating the <laughs> hell, you know, out of uh, the yes, other politicians, understood. John Burner for him, but. I would argue that you can go a long way with that, one, and two, that you don't have to go personal. You don't have to talk about people's personal lights or traits or, or that, mm-hmm. that uh, each of these candidates, I could, I could point to each of these candidates an issue that I think is probably more cutting that's a, you know, above the board vote in the legislature than any kind of personal trait. And I think that that's where you have to go. You have to have a discourse on people's votes and differences. No, that's understandable. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is because after Schweik's death, I thought you posted a very eloquent comment on Facebook and said publicly about changing the tone in Jefferson City. Because I know that Schweik was one of maybe two candidates that you publicly talked about how much you supported them and how much you wanted to win. The other was Jack Spooner. And I just wanted to ask because you did mention changing the tone. I mean, in 2012... Peter Kinder ran an ad against Susan Monty talking about going to gay pride festivals, talking about how she was a liberal activist, mm-hmm. things that... You I know, didn't know that was a name-calling. Un- understood. <laughs> well, and they circulated this this hidden video of her drinking at Democrat Well, that's not, that was 2010. And yeah, but still, but my, it, it bled just, over. But my point is, though... Remember the other part of my Facebook post was apologizing for yes. some of my past <laughs> sins. Well, well, that was going to be my question, because, I mean, I remember that when that ad came out, a lot of people in the gay community here in St. Louis were really upset about mm-hmm. that. And you were with Peter Kinder then. Is that the type of ad that maybe you were regretted, you know, sending or being a part with? Well, I, you know, I think that uh, the purpose was sort of to point that her her values in regards to issues and things were out of touch with rural Missouri. And, you know, I think the politics have changed in terms of, of uh, gay issues, as, as we've seen, like on, on, on gun issues, it's gone decidedly pro-gun. I think on gay issues, it's gone decidedly the other way. So it wouldn't be used, one, because it wouldn't be very effective, and then two, uh, you know, I... I think you always look back. You have, I think, you have a regret in a campaign of anything you say or do as negative. Because, guys, just like you, when you report a story that outs someone and destroys their career, I don't sure. think you get up the next day gleefully. Now, no. maybe some do, where because they think they're going to go war. But I think no. most people, there is a regret to it, mm-hmm. and I think that regret's the same. You do your job. Your candidate is the one that says, you know, yes or no, and the pollster. But in the end of the day. 
you don't want to live your life or have your career where it's mm. defined by one moment after another. And, like and to be fair, I mean, the lieutenant governor in that primary probably withstood one of the most, you know, vicious barrage of ads I think I've seen in a primary recently. So it clearly, you know, the lieutenant governor we've had on the show, we're probably going to have him on again. That was not a fun campaign for him no. by any stretch of the imagination. And he was the subject of some very personal ads as well. But and, I just, and guys, you're in a lot of emotion when yeah. you're in the middle of a campaign. And to, to when you're trying to figure out polls and try to figure out how to go, I'm just telling you, it's very easy in this business for everybody involved, from the candidate to the operatives, everybody else, to step over those lines. And, and again, I would wish out of Tom's death, at least we would take a pause and say, you know, can we do it a little differently? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a challenge that at least has to be considered. We can't be so catless to just say, oh, well, let's just go on. I mean, you can, but that shouldn't be the way that, again, that this business works and goes about. No. Well, during the, the 2012 primary uh, that Kinder had with a fellow Republican, there was a barrage of ads run against Kinder by a 501c4, which mm-hmm. is a group that doesn't have to identify their donors. And it was generally believed that it was someone allied with Lager, his um, primary opponent. There already are some 501c4s that have been created to either advance certain issues in the legislature, but now to advance certain causes or battle certain causes that are going to be on the 2016 ballot. Does that make it harder to change the discourse if you have a growth of groups, and frankly, these are by both parties, Mm -hmm. uh, where you don't know the donors and they're particularly being harsh in their attacks. No, that's a good point. I mean, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be disclosure. There needs to be transparency. It's that simple. The only way you can have a a political system that works long-term is not corrupt is to have complete transparency. And if you can't do that, you got to figure out how to do limits and make limits stick with everybody. Now, but my final question before we shift to right to work. I mean, you mentioned Chris Coster and you mm-hmm. recruited him in the Senate. You know, we've had people, Republicans on this show saying, you know, we're going to be competitive against Chris Coster. we got to beat Chris Coster. I haven't heard one Republican say that he's going to be easy to beat. I haven't heard one person who is very confident in the fact that they're going to be able to beat Chris Coster, um, despite all of the, you know, you know, slings and arrows that get thrown his way by his adversaries and by journalists. What do you think it's going to take for Bruner or somebody else to defeat what many feel is a very difficult candidate Look, next year? Um, I, I like Chris personally, but I think he is very vulnerable. Uh, we've already done testing and a profile of a guy who's a successful business person, you know, as Bruner. Poll test almost two to one over uh, Chris Coster. People don't know that Dave Spence was only four points down to Jay Nixon coming into the August primary, and Jay Nixon had not had one penny spent against him. I think there are several things. One, I think Nixon's handling of Ferguson and his sort of no-show governor uh, is creating an environment that's bad for the Democrats, and I don't know how Coster, as a convert, really runs away from that. So I think the environment is questionable. I think the the fact that he switched and that no one has, Ed Martin didn't, um, has really taken Chris and you know said, how can you go from pro-life to pro-choice? How can you be this and to be that? I think a lack of sincerity with the uh, the where the voters are today, they're looking for sincerity. They're looking for real leadership. I think that so you have the environment. I think you have Chris's record. I think you have just a different in management. And uh, look at the poll numbers. Chris has been attorney general now for six years. 
and his poll numbers uh, are not that good. He is running neck and neck with all the Republicans. I absolutely believe that there is a, a very good chance, if John Brenner is the nominee, that he will defeat Chris Coster. I, I'll tell Chris that myself. I'm saying on this program, and not out of wish. I don't, I'm a strategist. I'm just telling you, when you look at the poll numbers, you look at the ideas, you look at their records, their comparisons, I think it's a very competitive race that actually may favor John Bruner. And I think some of the other candidates, uh, Peter Kinder, uh, 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 Mike Parsons, Catherine Hannaway, I think all of them have traits that could make them a lot stronger than people believe. I, the, the worst thing is, how do you how do you want to be the candidate that's so far ahead that you're not kept frosty every day? Chris is not working like a guy that's running for his life. And at some point, it becomes too late. It's sort of a tortoise in the hare situation. Now, 2016 is going to be a presidential election year. Mm-hmm. Now, you saw in 2012, a lot of people thought McCaskill was toast, in part because they figured Obama wouldn't do well in Missouri, which he didn't. But she was made, able to shift the argument so people, so there was a huge, uh, about 30%, 30 percentage shift between people who voted for Romney and then ended up voting for um, McCaskill. So and then that helped the rest of the Democratic ticket. So when you're talking about how Bruner or any other Republican would do against Coster, is that contingent somewhat on who the presidential nominee is and how strong or weak um, Hillary Clinton is? You are, Joe, as usual, you are you are absolutely right. Um, the presidential contest, so we don't really know. So when we ask the discussion, is Chris beatable or not? That's going to weigh into it heavily, both favorably and unfavorably. If Hillary Clinton does not contest the state, if Roy Blunt runs a non-competitive campaign, things like that, those are all going to move dramatically for the Republican nominee. And then you've got the issues on the ballot. Uh, and and so let's right to work, for example. Yeah, that was going to be we're going to transition into that. Do you think that's going to be on the ballot? Well, let me let me say this. Okay. The Republicans have put themselves in an incredibly bad position strategically to put right to work out there, to make it an issue, to throw down to the national unions, and then not to complete the task is painting a target on every Republican. And my strategic advice to the party is, one way or another, you have to take right to work off the table before the November elections, otherwise the unions will be in with tremendous resources. Is that done by the Republicans passing it on override? Yes. If that's done, we look at Indiana, we look at, uh, at Wisconsin, we look at Michigan, the unions just putter out. If that doesn't work, do you put it on the ballot for, for August or something? Maybe. So I think one way or another, the Republicans have to come to grips with the fact that if right to work is not resolved going to November, they're in trouble. Well, I wanted to play a clip from a former House Speaker, Steve Tilley. For full disclosure, he's representing the AFL-CAO. I don't, do you have any clients that are union-based? They, yeah. they steer away from David Barclay, basically. <laughs> this is what he had to say about the issue, and I, I'll, I'll follow up with him after, after this clip. There's a whole host of anti-conservative principles at work. When's the last time this supermajority of Republicans went in and said, we want to get involved in a contract negotiation between employer and employee? Or when did we get involved, uh, this supermajority of Republicans get involved in telling an employer, hey, you, you can't do that even if you want to in your own private business. And so it's just not, it's really not consistent. So the reason I played that clip is obviously Tilly is representing the unions there, but he held that belief when he was in the House pretty much. And I know that there are a lot of other Republicans in both chambers who are opposed to right to work. Mainly those from the suburbs. And um, I just wonder, like, 
is it going to be a situation, especially if it's on the ballot, hypothetically, that some of the Republicans that are running in kind of marginal districts are kind of swept away because the union activity goes up and, you know, they, they kind of get lost in the shuffle. Well, there. The, the, the problem for a lot of these people are is they want to support the unions, but the unions are going to pump in a ton of money to turn out people that are going to eventually vote against them. So even those people who support the unions, I don't care what a union what unions say, there's no way they can do their turnout efforts and their media and everything that won't impact those marginal districts. So the question to them is, how far are they willing to go to the group that's going to defeat them and helping them defeat them? And that's the political question. Then there is the policy question, and right to work isn't just about you know, uh, job creation, it's its about power. It's about the swagger of unions in terms of controlling agendas. I mean, maybe people don't want to say that, but it is. It's much bigger than just a jobs issue. So there are a lot of things that I think legislators are going to have to calculate. Party loyalty. You know, you go to the Senate. They're, they're really probably one vote short when it comes down to it, and one of those three or four people are going to have to really make a decision well, there, of personal there, there versus four, yeah, there for four, the party. Four people that voted against it. Tom Dempsey. The head Paul, of the Senate. Senator yeah. Paul Whelan of Jefferson County. And I'm talking about four Republicans. Correct. Uh, Gary Romine of Farmington and yeah. Ryan Silvey. And I, I, I said this on a previous show that, okay, maybe Dempsey changes his vote because he kind of goes along with the, the, the caucus position because he's the leader. I just don't see a scenario where any of those three end up switching, especially someone like Wheeland, who has been so far out there saying he's against right to work. I get it. But, you know, the union spent a million dollars brutally beating him up on bankruptcy and things like that. But, again, I think it's a question. A lot of these representatives, uh, they were given a false choice before. It's like vote for right to work, end your career, and it's going to go nowhere. It means nothing. Uh, because that was what uh, what happened last session. They were given a vote that wasn't going to go anywhere. So what sense did that make to, to do it? So I think now it comes down to if you're the single vote mm-hmm. standing behind right to work becoming the law mm-hmm. or it failing, I think that's a different calculation. Mm-hmm. Now, as someone who's been involved in a number of Senate campaigns, looking at it logistically, how how uh, Ron Richard, the Senate Majority Leader, decided to bring up right to work early in the final week of session and then the, the democrats in the session basically shut everything down after the vote so nothing was done except for one bill for the next mm-hmm. uh three days tactically do you think there sh- it should have been handled differently yes. how would you have done it i like ron richard but i, I have to say is that uh, i think john deal had if you're going to have a plan the plan would have been to uh deal with the override during session where you had a finite 10 days to sort of move and put your people around everything else. Uh, John had the plan. He was there. Uh, I think Ron fumbled the ball on that, and and it's sad because it's set up and put a lot of his membership and a lot of the members of the House in a much tougher spot. Why did why do you think he did it the way he did? I think uh, it wasn't so much Ron as I think there were several members that didn't want to do it, and he was listening to his membership, his majority leader. He was doing his job, so I'll say that for him. I'm just saying from a uh, issue perspective, a business perspective, a political perspective, uh, he failed the course uh, and in returns did what he thought his membership wanted. There were wanted. several people who I think were previously endorsed by the AFL-CIO who switched their votes on right to work. Eric Schmidt and Kurt Schaefer are the two that come to mind. Both of them are running statewide. I've gotten a sense that they basically voted that way because they're running in statewide elections. And you know, in, in, Schaefer, in Schaefer's case, may face a Republican primary. I mean, what have you heard about that? And do you kind of agree with that characterization on stuff yeah. like that? Look, you know, um, 
Coster was was uh, was endorsed by Missouri Right to Life, and now he's pro-choice. So mm-hmm. I I don't know if it. I guess I would liken it to this. I don't know what Coster's view was when he was endorsed by Missouri Right to Life. Maybe it was always consistently pro-choice. Uh, I would say with Kurt and Eric in particular, I think they uh, are are very strong in terms of pro-business, in terms of reform, things like that. And maybe it was easy to take the support, but I don't know if either one of them ever coming out and and saying that they were opposed to right to work. The fact that the FLCO or any labor group, I mean, you know, the different labor groups has different issues. Yeah. Firefighters, you know, it's right to work, not so much. They may not be for it, but it's not so much. And, so, and I guess in Schmidt's case, he was running unopposed. He was sitting on a lot of money. Yeah. He was a committee chairman. I understand that. The Schaefer one is a little bit different because he was running in you know, mm-hmm. I, it, it didn't end up being a competitive result, but Columbia and Boone County traditionally has been Democratic. So I think that was the more uh, situation that gets yeah, brought but up. But again, on. I don't know of any time that Kurt has been has ever said that he would uh, oppose right to work. And then look at this. And Bob Andersee, where people thought St. Charles was such a labor county, mm-hmm. Gatchenberger and Vicki Schneider came out and were strongly against right to work. Mm-hmm. Onder was strongly pro-right to work, and he won with over 60% of the vote. And that's in the heart of what people believe is labor country. I think there's a very big change for Republicans. Now, there are some who contend, in fact, Tilly was one of them, who claimed that in the in that particular contest that there were other factors, and that they claimed that Onder didn't emphasize the opposition right to work. Instead, he was emphasizing his oh, no. opposition to Obamacare. Hang on. I'm, I'm not saying he didn't, but <laughs> what Tilly's contention— I'm. Come on, guys, fight. Out, let's, let's hear I'm this. Laying out this Tilly. is like the second show in a row we're fighting. But <laughs> I'm laying out Tilly's contention here. Yes. He's contending that there were other issues like Anders' opposition to uh, Obamacare and some of the other things that he contends was a bigger factor. I'm laying that out because I'm interested in your just, take on it. I will just say, having covered that race, Ander was front and center saying he was pro-right to work. He I was, know. He was not like hiding it or anything. No, no, no. Well, he wasn't Look, saying that. But, but I my hate point to say was, this, okay. but you're both right to the extent that he was very visible on it. I think it was an issue. But in any race, there are obviously more than just one issue. I mean, it, it. there are some races that are defined on one issue, but typically, I mean, you know, was it money? Was it timing? Was it media? Was it the door-to-door? Was it the personalities? Was it the issues? All those well, have Andres something to do with it. Well, a great candidate. Yeah. I want to emphasize that. He was a stronger candidate. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know we, we did uh, Blaine Luchtemeyer's campaign against him for Congress, and yeah. he was a tenacious competitor. Yeah, and so... I mean, right now it's June. I mean, the override attempt will come up in September, and it's really going to be, I think, a big test of Todd Richardson's House leadership because it goes to the House first, and I think that they have to decide whether they want to do an override or not. What is your prediction on what do you think will happen at this point in time? Look, uh, Todd, I have to tell you, I think Todd is, if not going to be seen as one of the best speakers that we've seen or that we've ever had, um, he'll be one of the best. He has the ability, a lot like his dad, to be able to say no to you, and you're, oh, okay, that's fine. I mean, he just has a real personable uh, ability to bring people together and make things happen. Uh, and so I think if anybody can do it, he can. I mean, he's shorted, obviously, because there's uh, two vacancies, and I could imagine if they get close that the governor will give any appointment away to block it. So that is a challenge for him. And he didn't structure this. He's inherited it. So I don't think it would be a measure of his leadership uh, is to be tested when you walk into somewhere and the table's already set. I think it would be interesting how he handles it. I think that uh, there is a chance it can be overridden when you look at the greater issues. But Mm -hmm. 
you know, we'll have to see. Because I've had some business people, I mean, top people with some of the business groups in the state tell me privately that, A, they don't say the House has the votes, but B, that their signals that they've been getting from Richardson is that he doesn't want to divide the caucus so soon, especially when he just took over. Is that what you're hearing as well? In other words, there's a hint there might not even be a vote. I, I think I think Todd Richardson is is committed to carrying on the business, the House that was the agenda that was set forth that he inherited, and he's going to do whatever it takes. I also think he's going to be mindful of the impact of members, and so I think that I don't think he's figured out where he's going to go today, and I don't know that personally, but my guess is that Todd that he is going to do everything he can to pull the caucus together to see if they have the votes, and if they can do it. He's going to be the one to be able to do it, and if they don't, I think he's going to do whatever he can to sort of keep and bring the caucus back together. And I know that's somewhat ambiguous, but it's it's probably true. I mean, he 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 is going to want to try to save unity. At the same time, I think he's going to go for it as hard as he can. We only have a couple minutes left. I want to do a couple quick hits with Senate races. Uh-oh. Do you think that the Republicans can take back the first? Yes, uh, that's currently absolutely. heard by Sifton. And who do you think is the candidate? Is it Marsha Hafner? I think Marsha Hafner is the, the candidate. I think she'll be incredibly strong. Uh, Rick Stream, after being brutalized as a pro-life birther, um, you know, right-wing extremist, carried that over Stanger, who is the incumbent there. Carried almost every township. Yeah. And then, so, yeah, of course, Stream's planning on running for the state Senate from a different district. But that's a heavily Republican district. Right. Now, the, we had a guest on last week, uh, Stephen Weber of Columbia. There's really class act. A Great guy. Very class act, I would agree. Also, Caleb Jones, who may run against him, may not run against him, also a class act. Can the Republicans keep that district? That one seems to be pretty challenging because Boone County is traditionally Democratic. Well, you know, we, we ran that seat against Chuck Graham in, uh, in uh, you know, in 2008 when Obama carried that district overwhelmingly and we won it. Of course, Graham had some personal problems. Which yeah. kind of... But, I mean, you know, you've seen Kenny Holsoff, You've seen Kevin Crane. You've seen a group of yes. Republicans that do it. I think Caleb uh, fits that profile. I think it would be a very competitive race. I can't say we'll absolutely beat Steve Web- Stephen Weber. I think he's a really decent guy, and he and Caleb are very good friends. Yes. So the tone of that race, I think, might actually be fairly positive. That would be that would be refreshing for yes. somebody because the Columbia political scene can be absolutely brutal. It's probably okay. only second you, you to are, Cape Girardeau. Here's where a reporter is downplaying. Look, the Ken Jacobs, the, there has been a... A Democrat sort of personality out of Columbia that's oh, yeah. overly aggressive in your face for years. Oh, I'm not talking Republican versus yeah. Democrat. I'm talking Democrat versus yeah. Democrat, Republican right. but I, but versus I, I Democrat. But I got to tell you, yeah. if you look at the numbers there, I mean, you know, one, Montauk County will be huge. I, I think, you know, Caleb Cooper, will take Cooper that, County. or Cooper County, excuse yeah. me, you know, 70, 80 percent. But the other thing is, is that Columbia sort of swung back around. There's enough of the rural area and population growth that's a lot more moderate uh, and a lot more, you know, somewhat conservative. Kurt uh, and some of the other elections, you look at Kayla Rowden's seat, some of the others. I mean, there's some real depth to Republicans in, in, in Columbia. I think it's somewhat switched, so to be a competitive race. Ballot issues, what effect might they have? I mean, because there may, very, may be a marijuana yes. issue on the ballot. There may be uh, campaign finance on the restrictions on the yeah. ballot. There may be photo ID on the ballot. Do you have any thoughts about how issues might affect all Absolutely. this? And are you going to be involved in some of those Absolutely. races? Absolutely. We, we track that several ways. A very quick brief is that minimum wage 
uh, may very well be on the ballot. Uh, and minimum wage passed in Arkansas, I think, by 73 percent while they swept everything. So the old attache that, that, that minimum wage is going to drive Democrat votes, I'm not sure that that's going to have much of an impact. Medical marijuana uh, is most likely. I don't know if recreational will make it. Uh, medical, uh, I think, might drive out some of your, um, you know, more... Uh, libertarian elements in Columbia in those areas, but you know they switch on different ballots. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's going to be a huge impact. Uh, I believe there was actually a marijuana initiative when Kurt was running the one time, um, and maybe in 2008. I'm thinking that was when it was, or maybe it was in 10. I can't remember. We had some elections, mm-hmm. and it didn't overly impact us there. Yeah. I don't think that uh, uh, that we're going to see. Uh, I mean, I think outside of that, the realtors have a prohibition against taxes on services, sales taxes on services. That would bring out some uh, conservative and bring out the realtors, and that might marginally help. Uh, And what am I missing here? Um, uh, I don't think campaign finance, everybody wants to talk about it. No one wants to fund it, just like ethics reform Mm -hmm. should be on the ballot, but who's going to fund it? Um, and ask me has got a minimum wage or a 85 percent proposal. Well, it proposal. would be just a closing thought. It would be kind of awkward if there was a campaign finance limit proposal that Chris Coster had to publicly oppose. That's all I'm going to say on that. Well, topic. he may just take a non-position on it, but whatever. Well, well Chris hope. does that a lot. A lot of non-positions. <laughs> I hope he's listening. Well, I I think his position on that issue is pretty clear. But um, thank you very much for coming in. We appreciate awesome. it. Um, to close us out, you can find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. It's J M A N N I E S. And I guess we can follow you on Twitter with the hashtag Barclage Cup or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I actually, I, I don't know my Twitter account. All I know is that I've been today with two great reporters that uh, people around the Capitol respect. So I'll give you all that. Thank you. And uh, we, we appreciate that, that flattering uh, praise. Until next week, so long.